Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to episode 67. Well, I don't know if it is evening, it could be morning, it could be... Well, it could be lots of things, couldn't it? This is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous, episode 67. I think I just said that. Well, this one is just going to be total old school, nerding out, vintage, heavy metal chat. I'm talking to Dan Lilker, the legendary Dan Lilker, who formed Anthrax way, way back 40 years ago. Anthrax, Nuclear Assault, SOD, Brutal Truth, amongst a whole lot of other um, projects and this and that. He's popped up playing the bass for Autopsy, for Dark Angel, etc., etc. A proper actual heavy metal legend. Um, we've shared a few backstages, a few beers, a few stages over the years. And um, I just thought I'd been watching these episodes that Anthrax were doing about their history. Um, never been one of my favorite bands, but the uh, episodes are pretty engaging and up popped Dan in episodes one or two, and I thought I should give him a call and see if he wants to come on the podcast. So here he is to talk about all sorts of things. Those first tours with Metallica in 83, Dave Mustaine getting kicked out, SOD, former nuclear assault, as I said, um, some t- tour hijinks from the 1980s, all that kind of thing. So this one is just pure heavy metal. Um, ain't no... politics ain't no whinging about this or complaining about the other it's just pure nerding out heavy metal normal service will be resumed next week i imagine as i have lots of other things to complain about but sure you of course knew that and this is what you expect and that's why the podcast is called agitators anonymous the clue is in the name all right so the podcast is sponsored by MetalBlade.com. If you're in North America, um, go and take a look at the mail order and see something you fancy. Put in the promo code ALAN and you will get 10% off in North America. Um, Eisenwald Records, all sorts of post-black metal, pagan metal stuff. www.eisenton.de and .com. Go there and... Do the same thing and you will get 10% off your order. And also Hate Couture, hateful yet tasteful clothing and apparel. Hate as in I hate you. C-O-U-T-U-R-E-616.com. And um, you'll get free shipping, which, believe me, is worth a lot these days. There will be links. There is links below this. And you can just click on that and go and take a look at the various websites and have a look. If you like the podcast... Please do share, subscribe, um, link it to somebody who might want to 
drop in and have a listen to a few of the episodes or a few of the chats or this kind of thing. It really helps me out. Give it a rating, etc., etc. All right, then, without further ado, this is episode 67, and this is the uh, heavy metal legend that is Dan Lilker. Let's do it. Wow. What the fuck is that? That's um, that's the New World Order telling me that recording is in progress. This meeting is being recorded. Got it. Damn it. All right. So this is being recorded. Hello, sir. How are you doing? All right? No, no, that's fine. Uh, all right. Pretty good, man. How are you? I mean, you know, I'm getting over a backache, so I'm in my comfy chair. All Normally, right. I do this at the kitchen table, but... Uh, Sitting upright like this for an hour like that, it would still get a bit achy. So this is uh, the comfy chair. What I've done is rotated at 180 degrees. So it's usually I'm watching TV back there, but now I've uh, got it because we needed the light from the windows. If You know, the uh, basic whatever our apartment is. So we got the uh, afternoon lights, and so now you can see me. All so, right. Well... What it was sort of prompted me to, um, uh, you know, try and arrange this was, I remember we were sitting at a table in Germany a few years ago when we were discussing that sort of early 80s metal scene that you were part of and the first Anthrax album and all that kind of stuff. What I just wanted to sort of, and then I saw you pop up in those Anthrax episodes, you know? Right. And I, what I wanted to do is just sort of maybe try and start off with just a few. It's fascinating to me to hear about stories from that sort of 80 to 83 period, obviously, because I um, wasn't quite of that vintage, but specifically about, oh, you know, Lemours and all that kind of stuff, because they are names that we would have read in magazines over here, you know, and never yeah. really, they were sort of like mythical names that you would have looked at, you know, the poster for like Overkill and Anthrax and Lemours or something like this. And they were kind of places that, um, I suppose the same as the Zecca Carl and Essen or something or the Marquis or something that you never thought you'd ever get to that. They were just like sort of mythical heavy metal places. So what I want, first wanted to was like sort of just poke your sort of memory of being around those kind of places in like 80, 81, 82, 83 or something like this, you know? Actually, uh, Lamore, I didn't really start going to Lamore. That didn't really start going on until about 84, 85 as far as, I mean, I think they might've done shows there previously and also, Probably depends on how old I was and whether I could get into clubs and everything. But um, the 80 to 83, that was really just the formative years of Anthrax. Actually, I think yesterday was Anthrax's 40th anniversary. Right. Yeah. Right. But, uh, yeah. But um, that early 80s period, you know, I was just uh, 16, 17. And... Yeah, I don't even think I could get into a club at that point. But we obviously we, we could play a club, and you just couldn't drink or something. Yeah. But well, uh, what was the first gig you went to see then? Back then, at that time. Oh God. Um, probably just shit like Overkill or Carnivore or other bands. God, was even Carnivore wasn't even around back then. Um, I think it might have been actually. Uh, we were going to the shows that Johnny Z was doing the Rock and Roll Heaven ones, where he was having. Uh, Anvil or Raven or even there was like Venom and Metallica. Yeah. I think it was stuff like that, more like uh, bands, you know, like Anvil would come in and we'd be like, look at these guys, they're fucking crazy looking and uh, go check them out. So I think those shows before I uh, started going to like Lamore became a thing. So uh, yeah, just getting to see uh, and playing with Metallica. I mean, uh, when I was in Anthrax, we played the first gig Kirk time I'd ever played. Oh yeah, we okay. Huh? Yeah, that must be what, like 83 or something, is it? Yeah, 83, because I didn't play with Anthrax in 84. I was uh, asked to depart the band in January 84. So yeah, I, the last shit I did with them well, would have been in 83. And uh, yeah, right at the end of 83, Metallica and Anthrax played. Uh, so... It wasn't New Rochelle, White Plains, somewhere up there in Westchester County. And it was a really good show. And then a month later, I was uh, out of the band again. Not again, but I was out of the bands. And then uh, one of those, the rest is history because I called up John Connolly. And I, yeah. I was glad. And uh, you know what happened then? But those kind of like 80, that era of 83, when you were playing those, those shows, what was the difference then between like East and West Coast scene? 
um, I mean, was there some sort of, um, I don't know, musical sort of lineage difference or what would you say? Well, that's a tricky question because the bands that were most known as Bay Area bands maybe had a more melodic approach. To, but that, maybe that was a bit later in the mid 80s, I suppose with Testament and Forbidden and all that stuff. Whereas the New York bands, with the exception of Overkill, who were more kind of on the power metal tip, mm. had a more harder edged, hardcore influenced vibe. But then that whole thing gets thrown out the window when you think of bands like, you know, Possessed and Sadist and Autopsy. Yeah. But those bands weren't getting the attention. Those were uh, what we call like the weirdos from the suburbs where, you know, uh, Forbidden and, you know, Heathen, which was, you know, a bit on the lightweight side, that stuff. But earlier than that, it was Metallica, Exodus, you know, even like Blas Rocket, fans like that. And we uh, read Metal Mania fanzine that Ron Quintana did. And I will admit that they probably had a healthier scene out there as far as more bands up north in the Bay Area. Of course, in L.A., you had Slayer and Dark Angel, so you can't really fuck with that. Yeah. And, you know, so... Um, and so what were you guys doing then? You were literally just... About to, you were just off the back of Fistful of Metal doing like a week with Metallica on the East Coast or something like that. What did they do? Did they just like literally get a, they, could, they couldn't have flown out surely back then, no? No, they, I think they were just here anyway because they had recorded. They drove out to record Kill Em All in the spring of 83. And then they were living at the music building in Queens where Anthrax rehearsed and they were like living there, you know, which was kind of shitty as far as like having a shower and a proper meal. Yeah. But I think they, um, as things progressed, I think they had better living quarters and everything like that. But I think they just basically hung out on the East Coast for a while and did some shows. I'm so, uh, anywhere then. And then they, uh, they told Dave Mustaine to go home and they flew Kirk in. And, yeah. Really? Yeah, they put David Stane on a fucking bus, dude. A bus across 2,400-mile country. You know, with that 3,600 clicks or something, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of cold. And what's your sort of, like the Anthrax episode things, sort of, I liked the way they pulled everyone into the story, but it seemed like, so, it, seemed like it was only like, six months ago for Neil Turbin or something like this, that it was still a sort of like a recent event or something like this, you know? But I thought you came across pretty well in it because you came across very diplomatic, actually, you know? Well, that's basically how I am, you know? I mean, it's 40 years later, it'd be kind of dumb to still be bitter about it. Mm. I mean, let's face it, the career choices I made after that, going from nuclear assault to brutal truth, I mean, obviously, I wasn't out there to play popular music and make money. I was doing what the fuck I wanted. But... As far as Neil goes, Neil, uh, I don't know. It's going to be hard to be different. Ahead, you know? um, he never seemed to get over it. And he always seemed to kind of just, everything he did after that was always based on the past. And, you know, Neil Turbin's Death Riders. And his whole thing was kind of just, his whole um, resume, as it were, was just, you know, I played an Athrax for, I just looked ahead and just followed what I wanted to do. And, didn't really carry that with me. And I mean, of course, it still stayed with me. You know, I work at a record store here in town and our boss loves to introduce me to our friends as the guy who formed Anthrax. And I'm like, that was 40 years ago, but that's okay. I mean, she's not going to know who fucking Nocturnal Hellstone is. Well, she might, <laughs> but you know, you know, it's not as good as a calling card, is it? Well, what about those sort of like uh, 81, 82 sort of years? Because like I, that's it. They're kind of a bit before my time. I probably would have started into heavy stuff in 86 or 87, but they seem like sort of in 1987, 1983 seemed like a lifetime away, even though now obviously it's, you know, four years is absolutely nothing. But like, so the difference, it's the difference between buying, um, you know, into the pandemonium than buying apocalyptic raids or something like that. And that sort of three or four years seemed like an eternity when you were a kid or something. But what was like, the sort of first things you got into or like the first rehearsals or you were there was like a record store you all hung around with it around at the time in 81 82 or what like how was the the scene sort of because i always think like every scene needs about six movers and shakers in it who sort of somebody has a tape label somebody has a fanzine somebody's a couple of people who play the guitar one drummer and then all of a sudden layers start building up on top of that so who was like the first mover 
and Shaker and the scene in that sort of time, you know, because people are really fascinated by this, those sort of old stories, I think, you know, well, I certainly have. Hmm. That is a really a good question. I don't think there was one central person that was all kind of around. 81, 82, as far as our musical tastes, we uh, were already familiar with Priest and Maiden. And then a friend of ours who was an older dude, it's always a guy who's a couple of years older, you know, mm. we went to this guy named Joe. We went to uh, his house and he played us, you know, Motorhead. That was the first time I heard Ace of Spades. And that was like next level, you know, when you were used to Priest and Maiden. Yeah. Priest and Maiden, you know, they had like the clean vocals and the harmony guitars. And then you had Motorhead, which was just dirty, nasty, raw, the distorted bass, the gruff vocals. And then hearing uh, Angel Witch. I'm not answering the question directly. I'm asking, um, just telling you more about what I got into that got into heavier shit. But for instance, it was just a random dude like that, you know, a dude who was yeah. like three years older than us. And said, hey, check out these bands. You like Priest of Maiden, check out Motorhead. You know, yeah. here's Angel Witch. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And then of course, Angel Witch, that was the first thing, because this is before I heard Venom, that had the whole occult file. Yeah. Not that I'm known for playing you know, lots of satanic bands, but you know, you know me. And that, that whole connection too, like, wow, this is also like evil and dark. And of course, back then, you know, it was, you know, kill your father, rape your mother. Everybody thought that anybody was into that stuff. And of course, Ozzy was biting the heads off bats around then, wasn't he? And shit like that. So, so, do you, so do you remember the first time you heard like, welcome to hell or black metal? Normally that's like, in a, like a eureka moment for most people I talk to from that sort of era. They go, oh, well, that was, yeah, that was the day when we stopped, like, say, wearing spandex and things got a little bit more serious, you know? Well, I had a good friend. Okay. Now, um, this is going to digress a little bit, but of course, you know, lots of hardcore bands sick of it all. Yeah, yeah. Their bass player is Craig Satari. I basically taught that guy how to play bass, but he's about five years younger than me. I used to hang out with his older brother, Scott, who was my age, because we met in high school orchestra, and another guy, this guy, Tom Beach, big fat metalhead dude. And we were at, you were talking about a record store that we called yeah. last there was a store called the Music Box in a certain area of Queens. We had to take a couple of buses to get to, but they had this little metal section, and we were thumbing through it. And my friend Tom goes, "Oh shit, look at this! The new Venom is out," and that was black metal. Yeah. Went back after that and rediscovered Welcome to Hell. But he goes, "Wow, look at this!" And of course, when you first look at that, you know, with the Baphomet on the cover and all that, you're, mm. sure. And then you look on the back. I mean. Yeah, I mean, Mantis on the fucking little motorbike with the amps, that is a little humor, but you know, it's like, where are you going, buddy? Yeah. But um, yeah, that of course was like, whoa. And then right after that, you see the Merciful Fade EP and the cover of that and King Diamonds on the back of that. Yeah. And then you're like, wow, what is going on here? And Dave Mustaine fucking his first one when Metallica rehearsed. And Metallica turned us on to some of those bands too. They were like, hey, check out this band, Merciful Fate from Denmark, because Lars being, you know, Danish, yeah, yeah. A, you know, had a connection to that. So those guys were influential with that too. Besides just sitting in their rehearsal room and watching them do an instrumental rehearsal back in the day. Yeah. And Lars was still, he's still not the best drummer now, but back then he had just gotten his double bass. And yeah, yeah. Of course, he didn't have the posture he has now. He just freaking leaned over like a little rat yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i was talking to steve hughes about something similar and I, cause I was trying to pinpoint his sort of you know eureka moment for slaughter lord and he said there was a moment where he lived in the blue mountains in australia him and his mate he had two or three mates and they sort of milled around and then one day he went down to sydney to see iron maiden for number of the beast and he came around the corner it was the first time he'd ever seen like 4,000 metalheads queued up outside and it just fucking, like, his mind literally just exploded. Uh, but, he also, but he also told me that he remembers the record store the day In the Sign of Evil came in the record store and him and his mates were just kind of standing around going, what the fuck? They just never heard anything. It, like, it was just, they're, they're trying to ratchet it up constantly in terms of what was more and more extreme. But did you get those kind of early European records over there in, like, 84, that kind of time? Yeah, I remember seeing In the Sign of Evil. Here's a funny story about In the Sign of Evil. Hmm. Um, I bought it 
And then a couple of months later, maybe six months later, probably because uh, you know I do smoke a lot of pot, I accidentally repurchased it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I came home, I said, oh, fuck, I have this already. So I took the Shrinkraft one and just put it aside. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I sold it for like $700. Yeah, <laughs> the very first one, like the Devil's Game Edition one, you know, so whatever. Oh, yeah, well, it tastes to be stupid. But uh, <laughs> yeah, In the Sign of Evil, and then when you saw the cover of Sentence of Death, yeah, you know, like how many spikes could you put on without falling over? Yeah. Um, sure, we sold those records, and um, that was a big influence on us, that, you know, creator, Sodom, all that stuff, because by then, now you're talking about, I was starting to do the nuclear assault stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, having been released from Anthrax, I managed to say, okay, well, fuck it. Now I have more free reign to do exactly what I want, which, as you saw, when they got Joey, they went a little more on the melodic side. Mm -hmm. And I'm being influenced by bands like Discharge and Hellhammer. Sure. So I was going in the other. But Game Over yeah. has quite uh, But Game Over. Um, you know, Discharge just for the pure, just the thick, brutal. But but game over has a kind of very still has quite a very uh, heavy metal sensibility with the guitar melodies and stuff. I think though, you know. Yeah, well, game over. Um, some of the material you'll see on that, like songs like "Stranded in Hell," that has nothing to do with what Nuclear Assault was about lyrically anymore. But we yeah. just had some old songs that we kept from on there, and it's um, it's funny about game over because that guitar sounds I think is a tiny bit weak sounding it sounds like on the actual guitar like the volumes on seven instead of ten yeah when they when john and alex Perialis worked on the guitar sounds they said right okay we're going to uh test some shit out so that me glenn and anthony said okay and we just went and fucked off in ithaca for a while went to some batting cages and then went somewhere for some pizza and beer and we came back and those guys were tracking and we heard that sound and we're like that sounds a bit weak and they just glared at us like well you know we worked on it all day this is what we're going with and years and years later, people like, for instance, Ted from Dark Throne would tell me, dude, that's what made that record so endearing. That's what made it so, yeah. gave it that identity, that edge that, you know, it, I don't know. Yeah, so, I know what you mean. It's like, the, it's very similar to, um, well, it doesn't sound similar, but it's, it's kind of similar to the way sometimes people look at, um, you know, uh, Beyond the Gates or something. It has that strange, almost like very middly, um baseless kind of sound it's very um but it's got a sort of new way british heavy metal kind of vibe to it as well yeah is that the one that joe satriani did or was... that's the eyes of horror in it right eyes of horror yeah but when did you so then when nuclear assault like did you start like because you always struck me as the kind of guy who was into like say death metal a little bit sooner than a lot of major people in that scene so when were you hearing like stuff like death demos and that kind of thing it must be 85 86 then is it uh that kind of thing you know yeah i think maybe even before that i mean even like hearing like mantis and everything now i wasn't a big tape trader really? just because i'm a lazy cunt you know i mean uh <laughs> going to the post office and putting stamps on things you know but uh yeah i heard all the um i heard a lot of that really intense stuff um what was repulsion called genocide yeah yeah 85, 86, 85. Yeah, and then uh, Death, you know, with Cam Lee, of course, and like the live one, and even they have like the shitty Corpse Spade, just even like Show No Mercy or In the Side of Evil or stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, and this was before the more polished death metal, like the earache stuff. Yeah. You know, um, like when Morbid Angel, before they were doing blast beats the whole time and everything. Yeah. You know, there was like poison from Germany. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Sorts of nasty shit. Uh, Sabbat, you know, Japanese Sabbat. Um, what era were they? They would have been about 85. Yeah, they, were, they had a few in 86, 87, yeah. But tell me this, uh, just as a kind of like an uh, aside, always um, when you spoke to some of the death metal bands from the late 80s, early 90s, they always said that one of the reasons why they never thought that death metal got bigger and bigger was because the sort of big thrash bands at the time didn't want to take out the death metal bands and when you look back at some of the old tour posters certainly seems like there was a reluctance on behalf of like slayer or megadeth or whoever to take out something heavier come like 90 91 92 you know huh. i never thought of it that way but uh a lot of times 
these bands might be influenced by either their labels or their managers, and they get coerced into something. But um, I remember Nuclear Assault taking out Dark Angel. Now, Dark Angel is one of those bands that's like a bridge band, you know? Yeah. yeah. Thrash metal into death metal just because it was fucking so evil and fast, you know? And I, I was watching a video of you playing with Dark Angel in Paris. How did that end up? Ah, well, I could tell the story now because it's like fucking 35 years later. But, <laughs> Mike Gonzalez was temporarily unavailable because he was in a German prison. All right. Um, we had a day off in Nuremberg. Now, Nuremberg is, has an American army base. All right. They're used to Americans just getting shit-faced and uh, not behaving. You know, so what happened was we had a day off in Nuremberg. And this is ironic because it wasn't the Americans who caused any trouble, mostly, but we were, it was... Uh, Nuclear Assault, Dark Angel, Acid Rain. Wow, yeah. Acid Rain, opening. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good old Acid Rain, right? <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Okay, the upshot is we had a day off. I was hanging out with my buddy Matthias Prill, who I'm going to visit Frankfurt in two days, by the way. Um, oh, yeah. Now that we could go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it, but we won't get into that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I heard now there's a border now between uh, fucking... Uh, England and uh, is that the, one of the Brexit things that you got there going on now? There's don't <laughs> Damn. we can't go there. I'll start to <laughs> yeah, okay, we won't go there. Okay, news, that's all. Anyway, so uh, my point being that uh, we had that day off and I was hanging out with Matthias being sensible. We had a couple of beers at a bar and then we just went and chilled out at a hotel room. Some of the lads in Acid Rain and some of the Dark Angel guys got a bit too shit faced. And Matias and I walked out of a bar. We saw those guys across the street. They were fucking hammered. What they were doing is they were jumping on the boot of a car and then the roof and then the hood of parked cars and then going on to the next one. Okay. We just, Matias looked at those guys and said, let's get the fuck out of here. We do not want to be involved in that because those guys are going to get in trouble. And the cops ended up walking into a McDonald's around the corner and seeing, you know, that's, one of the people who had done that, but it wasn't Mike, but they just saw one of the guys and it was Mike Gonzalez and they grabbed him just as an example. And they said, I didn't do nothing, dude. And they just uh, they threw him in a fucking cell and said, uh, if you want him to get out, it's gonna be like 10,000 marks. Wow, okay. Which would have been uh, about five grand US. And it took a little while for that money to get drummed up. <laughs> um, right. So Dark Angel was like, fuck, dude, we're screwed. And I was like, look, dude, if you want to do Dark Angel for dummies, I could try to just uh, <laughs> learn as much as I can because there's shit, a lot of shit going on there. You know, yeah, I think yeah. of the most fast riff and Darkness Descends, the song, and yeah. a lot of notes going on, but I would just do every other one. So yeah. I got fast, I'd go, I go, do, 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 and uh, so I said, I don't want you guys to not be able to play shows. So let me just learn the basic version. And uh, yeah, I got to play like the Burning of Sodom and Perish of Flames. So yeah. it was a win for me. <laughs> yeah, it was for some reason, um, it was Joe from Gamma Bomb who told me about it. And he was like, yeah, you need to watch it. The show from Paris is online. I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to I got to check that out. Um, when I knew we were going to have a bit of a chat, you know, because I wanted to bring it up as to what the fuck, how the fuck you ended up playing in fucking Dark Angel, you know? Yeah. So that goes back to our original question about thrash metal bands not taking out death metal bands. What I noticed back was when Metallica first started breaking, they were opening for Ozzy at like Nassau Coliseum. Yeah. So Ozzy was giving the young bands like Metallica a chance. Yeah. Two years later, when Metallica was doing Master of Puppets and they were headlining arenas, they were taking out bands like The Cult. Yeah. And we were all like, what the fuck, man? It's like you got in there and then you just slammed the door behind you, didn't you? It strikes me that um, quite a few of the of the let's say um, Megadeth Slayer as well. I mean, I don't remember Slayer ever taking out it, what would have made sense at the time would have been a sepultura beneath the remains in 1990 or something. They sort of went not or an obituary or something. It was very uh, they that just sort of never happened that those bands took out the death metal bands. 
Yeah, well, like I said, that could be for a number of reasons. There could be the management could have been like, oh, we don't want some band that's going to be nipping at your heels and, you know, yeah. somebody that's different sounding or, you know, yeah. And uh, I never felt that way. When we took out Dark Angel, we just said, we're going to have a nice brutal tour. We weren't worried that, you know, they were 10 BPM faster than us or something, you know? Yeah. It's and just so, how it go. But and what we never crushed them with PA or lights. Yeah. One of those bands that would have opening bands would go, right, you could have 12 channels and six of those fucking lights up there. And uh, we were like, why would you hamper the band? Why did you not let them play as well as they can? And what, one of the things that I was thought was odd with um, Nuclear Assault um, was that it struck me that like every, almost every album seemed to be on a different label. You know, you got From Handleable Care on Survive. I mean, maybe uh, maybe that's something I have misremembered from a long time ago. But that whole Survive era, Survive Handleable Care era, that sort of 88 to 90 seemed like you were on a huge roll. And then I don't, and then I'm not sure, was it just a thrasher and out of steam by 91, 92 or what, you know? Or does it just seem like the natural sort of, um, the time had sort of um, moved on to something else and then you started doing other music or what? Well, uh, there's two answers to that question. The whole label <laughs> thing. Now, Hansel Care was on Ineffect Records, which is just a newer division of combat. Okay. So that was still basically combat like Game Over and the Plague. Mm. Five and Out of Order were on IRS. What happened was one of the dumbest things ever in the music business, which is that around Survive, Around 88, all the major labels wanted to get their finger in the thrash pie. Mm. Uh, they saw Columbia and well, you know, Metallica was signed to Electra and Slayer, and Def Jam, and you know, blah, blah. So IRS had an interest in nuclear assault, but combat, important relativity, that whole umbrella company didn't, were, didn't want to let us go. So they came up with this, what seemed like a good idea at the time, we'll just alternate. You can have the survive record in IRS, and then the band will go back to combat for hands of care. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then you'll go back to IRS out of order, and we'll just do it like that. So that was a big fucking fail because what happened was the label was like, well, we're not getting the next record. Why the fuck should we work this one that much? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's happened with that. So that combines with, in effect, being, you know, just from combat division. And it seemed like we were on lots of different labels. All during this time, I was getting into uh, more intense, brutal stuff. You know, I met people like Mr. Shane Embry around then. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I started losing interest in thrash and getting more into death and grind. So my heart wasn't in it anymore. I started Brutal Truth in 90 as a side project mm. when nuclear assault needed time off to have our lawyers go in and figure out what was going on with all this record deal business. Sure. Everything was big fucking knots. So the lawyer said, dudes, take three months, just give us some time. So we all decided we would do solo projects. Glenn did CIA, John did the John Connolly theory, Anthony did the not very well-known chainsaw, okay. and uh, I did Brutal Truth. Now, uh, obviously you can tell which bands uh, Kind of kept going. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, uh, gonna have a sip of craft beer here. <laughs> yeah, but there must have been a moment where I guess around it strikes me that um, sometimes, like the Clash of the Titans, that whole big thing somehow seems like the last gasp of thrash. And certainly by 1990, 91, you had sort of death metal coming along, sort of kicking a lot of the late 80s thrash bands into touch. But there must have been a moment in 92 where you just thought, all right, this is this, it's sort of run out of steam, you know? Well, yeah, it was in 92. I, uh, when Brutal Truth was offered the Campaign for Musical Destruction tour, playing the States with Napalm Death, Carcass, and Cathedral, which was, that fucking tour was eternal, dude. It was like nine weeks. Yeah. yeah. Nine weeks in a passenger van with Cathedral with Dorian's feet. Um, <laughs> Um, we were offered that tour. I was at a crossroads. I was like, if I 
go on a two-month tour with my new bands, that's going to be extremely disruptive to whatever nuclear assault has going on. Mm. And I'm kind of finished with nuclear assault. Besides my waning interest in thrash, there was other shit going on in nuclear assault where people were not getting along mm. and causing issues. So for various reasons, I had just lost my enthusiasm for it. So, but that was it. That was the turning point. When I was offered that tour, I said, if I take this fucking tour, then um, that's going to be it. Um, that's my way of saying, dudes, I'm out. I'm going to be doing this and I'm going to pursue this. And that's what I did. I told those guys I was doing the tour. Nuclear Assault still had a couple of shows left in Europe that I went on after to fulfill my commitments. So I wasn't an asshole. I'm like, dudes, I'm doing the shows we got booked, but after that, I'm done. I'm doing this tour of Brutal Truth and that's it. So it might have been a tiny bit awkward being on the tour, but they also respected the fact that I honor my commitments. They didn't say, fuck off, I'm out of here. Yeah. So yeah, it was 92. It was uh, the last shows with Nuclear Assault. We got to Belgium. And opened the van door and these kids ran up to me and said, Danny, what's going on with Brutal Truth? Blah, 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 blah. And the other guys were like, yeah. And at this point, we were doing a show where Nuclear Assault was doing festival show in Belgium where we were playing under obituary and napalm death. Yeah, yeah. And I said to the guys, not, I mean, not that, you know, the order on the bill is the most important thing, but it was, as you would say, it was yeah. a sign of what was going on. Yeah. See, you guys make fun of napalm death and think they're noise, but they're fucking higher on the bill than we are. Mm. So, yeah. There's also something that um, I missed, and that's fucking speak English or die, though, because um, I was looking through and I, uh, apart from the record, obviously, but I have a copy of it on CD, which appears to say that it sold a million copies. Could that be right? It's like yeah. a platinum silver CD. So I don't know why I, or where I got it from. Uh, you know, there's a record there. And then there's like, is this, could that really be really true? I think what it is, the proper definition of platinum in the States is that in one territory in the States, you sell a million copies of one release. But... I think what it was is that over the course of all that time, that record sold a million. Was it that or just all our releases? I forgot. All our releases. World, all our releases worldwide. Oh, okay. Just don't count as much, you know, live at Budokan. So it was not a proper platinum. However, the fact that a band like SOD, which was done as a joke, sold a million copies of our combined releases it's still fucking impressive. Yeah, yeah. That's what I wanted to ask about it because I forgot it there when we're talking about it. But like, how did that happen that it ended that you were sort of, you parted out ways with Anthrax on sort of relatively acrimonious terms and sort of ended up three years later in 86 doing Speak English or Die though? Was that just a sort of um, rehearsal room logic or six beer in logic or how did, well, how did that happen? It was actually... Uh, Sorry to move you back in the timeline, but you know. Well, the timeline, I was thrown out in January 84, and I just, sure, I was a bit fucking, you know, a little disappointed. Yeah. I shrugged my shoulders to form nuclear assault and uh, went on with that. So this is January 84. In April 85, I got a call from Scott saying, do you want to play in this little fun hardcore band we're going to do? Here's the thing, dude. When I'd been thrown out of Anthrax... It was more Neil Turbin's doing. Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. It couldn't deal with me because I was taller than him and I was a wise ass. And so he told the other guys, it's him or me. And then without consulting the other guys, he just, as you saw in the anthrax, I did, yeah, I did, yeah. backstory here. He yeah, just yeah. went fucking called me up, threw me out. And they were like, what? So seven months later, they threw him out. Eight months later, they called me up. Scott did, which was his way of saying, we threw out the wrong dude, but it wouldn't be fair to Frank to get you back in. And you got your own bands anyway, but hey, why don't we do this other band? And it'll be fun and we'll play fast. So it was really only a year and three months between January 84 and April 85 that I got the offer to do that. Because Speaking of Shredai came out in September 85. Mm. All right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm pre. I've, uh, something about that record, though, makes me think that things like that the first carnivore, that kind of thing. It would be hard for them to come out now. 
Um, I think a lot of people would be a little bit more um, grumpy at the subject matter or something like that, you know? It's, it, could, it existed in a time where a, a slightly more, um, well, naive time or whatever you want to call it, or better time, maybe some would say, whereby, um, yeah, bands just got on with singing about the subject matter. But there's something about that record, I think to myself, God damn it, I'm not sure that record could come out right now, in, you know, the same way. No, 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 everybody's all woke now and everything. <laughs> yeah, um, that's what I was inferring. <laughs> look, look, um, that record was just for shock value. Sure. We, there was a few people in the hardcore scene that do do edited maximum rock and roll, people like Joe Biafra, people who just, we thought just needed a bit of a fucking, um, they would complain about bands like Agnostic Front and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it was that Bonnie Raitt song, dude. Uh, let's give him something to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay, there's a reference. Yeah, so um, really what it was is that obviously those sentiments were not heartfelt. But at that time, you could get away with just just doing some stuff that was just like, whoa, you know, the, and you know, carnivore, you know. The kind of the yeah, yeah, of course. You know, it was just, you know, fucking rough, ruffle some feathers. And there's a few people who thought it was great. You know, Ginny from Murphy's Law thought it was like fucking spot on. Yeah, speaking to that, you know, we were like, why did you just fucking down? You know, yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah. Of course you couldn't do that now because nobody could take a joke. Yeah. And the nuclear assault was in uh, Recife, Brazil, and we were just hanging out in the lobby of the hotel. I was doing an interview with these 17-year-old kids, and they were like, but you have to sell the lesbians. And we're like, it's just fucking, we're just taking the piss, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like the way, it's like everything now is taken so literally. Um, you know, the, the object of a joke means that you have to mean it sincerely all the time um, uh, for kind of certain people. But I want to ask you about what is this? We remember, I remember that Brutal Tooth was supposed to play in Dublin, but you only got to Belfast. Is that with Macarb in 92 or something like this? Because we were sort of bummed out that there's this Macarb, Brutal Truth, and who was the other band that was on that tour? It was the European tour in 92. Pungent, that would have been 94. Pungent Stench, that's what it was. Was that 94, was it? Four. Right. Um, there might have been something that got fucked up with the booking. I do remember playing Belfast. Yeah. Playing Belfast with Nuclear Assault before that. But uh, I remember playing the Top Hat in Dublin with Slayer. But yeah. that was with Slayer. I um, saw that, yeah. Uh, that was 1988. Like, um, some of them uh, was... The uh, Top Hat and Don Leary, yeah. was like 1988, yeah. So. Yeah, crazy, that one. Um, well, I don't remember specifically what happened. It must have been just some fucked up, something fucked up with the booking. Because we were also supposed to play a few Italian shows and they got blown out. So we ended up going to Benidorm, Spain and just chilling out for four days. And now we got a fucking chunk of ash the size of a golf ball and whatever. Just said, okay, well, right, let's just go to the beach. Um, yeah, I couldn't, yeah, dude, um, if you're talking about something 27 years ago, I don't remember the exact reason we didn't play Dublin, but... Well, what is the um? What about the? One of the things that strikes me in the, for example, in the Anthrax episodes, which I've been enjoying watching actually, but certainly that whole mid nineties, ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight, even to me, that's like the lowest point almost for traditional metal, for heavy metal, you know, before you've got the resurgence of the second wave of underground stuff. The death metal kind of run its course even a little bit by ninety six you know, the Morbid Angels and the Deicides and that kind of thing. And it seemed like metal in general was just at this low, low ebb. What was the sort of um, the scene around you like compared to from the mid 80s to that like 96 period? Was there like a huge change? Or can you even remember, um, even with the things you were making, that there was a sort of, that felt like a sort of commercial tail off. Maybe it was Headbangers Ball dying or I don't know. A lot of things really, but um, that whole 97, 98 just seems to me like, New metal is starting. Everything is sort of really on the lowdown. Well, that new metal crap was already starting to manifest itself in the mid to early 90s when you had like bands like, and I hate to say it, but like bands like Sepultura that started catering to that. Mm. You know, they got Ross Robinson to do their record because he did the Corn record. And Pantera with that kind of I would have, of course, Pantera was never a new metal band, but they inspired a lot of those bands with that. And um, 
I remember, let's say I was at the airport in 94 with Brutal Truth, and I'm at the airport bar having a beer before my flight and sitting next to some guy. Hey, you know, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. What do you do? Oh, I'm going to Europe. I'm going to play in my metal band. They go, oh, metal. Is that like corn and limp biscuit? I'm like, no. Uh, talk to you later, dude. You know, um, and, uh, you know, they're not going to know who fucking Real Truth or Mayhem or anything like that. And yeah, death metal did start running its course then. But then, you know, you had bands like Dying Fetus that were still doing stuff like that and making it more grind, actually. You know, they were taking blast beats and putting them into death metal. You know, and then that whole thing got blurred with gore grinds, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. 96, 97. So is that like when uh, Anthrax is wearing plaid shirts or something? Is that what you mean? Well, what I mean is like, it just seemed to be that a moment where Judas Priest were at Jugulator, Iron Maiden were at Blaze, all, all the uh, traditional metal from the mid eighties had sort of run out of steam. Thrash metal had sort of gone. The early death metal excitement of Morbid Angel and Deicide and Death and all that had sort of dissipated. Even the black metal wave of Emperor Dimaborgir, Mayhem, etc., was kind of on the wane. It was like a moment where it just seemed like everything was at some sort of commercial low ebb. And it just was sort of interesting watching the Anthrax episodes because their band sort of went from like, you know, the 91, 1990 era. And by 98, 99, had just released a record and it was just gone. And, you know, just using them as an example. But it just struck me that there was a sort of um, a moment around 97, 98 where it seemed like metal was at its like lowest, lowest sort of ebb. Well, speaking for myself personally, in 97, 98, I was playing grindcore and black metal with Brutal Truth and Hemlock. Yes. You know, fuck what the rest of the world's doing. We just kept our heads down and fucking kept at it. And if metal was perceived by normal people as some commercial crap, then um, we didn't care because we just ignored all that and kept our heads down. So uh, we didn't give a flying fuck what people thought. And, and sure, you know, the general, what, what was perceived as underground metal then was certainly might have been at a ebb tide at that point, but uh, you know, because you know, at the risk of repeating myself, we didn't care. We just did what the fuck we were doing and ignored it. But doesn't it? One thing that always I always feel about is like somebody says to me, "Hey, uh, how was that record of X band from 2002?" And I go, "Oh yeah, that's pretty." You know, in my head, that's like a recent record. And then you realize, like, "Oh yeah, that's 19 years ago." Like we're talking about like 96, 97, 98. And to me, that's still recent in my memory. But when you speak to somebody who's 20, for example, and that's before they were even born, for example, this, mo this period from like 2000, 2000, 2010 or whatever, just seems to sort of, I seem to have lost a decade somewhere. Do you ever feel like that? Oh, yeah. That was, uh, well, new metal went down. Fucking thank the fucking dark lord. But uh, then metalcore came up, which was basically a bunch of bands from Massachusetts taking out the Gates riffs yeah, but it clean vocals in the chorus. Mm. So what was that? Um, you know, and I was bust Tompa's balls about that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, those bands were selling hundreds of thousands of records. Yeah, yeah, or fucking four hundred thousand records. But it just yeah. it just feels like discussing records from like two thousand um, to me seems like sort of recent. And um, but they aren't. They're twenty years ago. Well, yeah, it's it's weird when you look at the the amount of time now, I mean, from like 1986 to 2006, you know, I mean, uh, what was going on then? Uh, the section put out a comeback, comeback record that sounded like it was from Gothenburg. I yeah. took a long time to get used to that record. I now appreciate it for what it is, but it's not some of the fucking lights, Bane, is it? No. And no, not at all. It's, you know, um, Black Dragon's a fucking be a, a great fucking hit song, you know, it's fucking... But he's still talking about, you know, the end of the world. But musically, it was I'm not sure why I got on that tip, but I'm trying to describe, I guess, what was going on around then. And this is when nuclear assault got reactivated in 2002. It was, it was, was it 2002? It was, I think I saw a Vakken show in 2004 or 5. Um, uh, 2000, Vakken was, was 2002. Really? Okay, then I saw that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you were there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, boy, did I have a hangover at that fucking show. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I was... How did that happen, though? After about 10 years, my boredom with thrash metal, I just felt a fondness for it again. I got grindcore out of my system and black metal out of my system. Not out of my system, like I didn't want to play it anymore, but I'd done it, and now thrash metal seemed fun again. And meanwhile, all this time, this whole 10 years that I left the band, and I was active touring in other bands, people would come up and go, you ever going to do nuclear assault again, dude? That shit was great, man. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm fucking 18. I never got to see you guys back in the day. So in 2002, we got an offer from the dude who had done the Milwaukee Metal Fest stuff. You guys want to play my New Jersey Metal Fest? Oh, okay. And we just said, sure, why the fuck not? And as soon as that happened, it just started snowballing. Same thing that happened with Brutal Truth in 2006, 2007. Once you start doing a band again that people have been craving for years, that sounds egotistical, but it's fucking true. Um, That's true, yeah, because younger people don't get to see that kind of thing. I always said to my friends who would be like, you know, you'd always meet somebody who'd go like, oh, they're fucking reforming for this reason or that reason. I was like, no, nah, well, come on, you know, in fairness, if you've seen Nuclear Assault in 88, and you're going to deny somebody who's 19 or 20 the opportunity to see a band, you know, um, come out, and if they're in good shape or good enough shape, then that's okay for younger people or whatever. You know, you you can't say, like, if, if Sepultura all reformed and went, we'll have one more slash shot of the dice, you know, you go, all right, you wrote those songs, why not? Because a whole generation of people never got to see Beneath the Remains era, Sepultura or something, you know? Right. Or uh, Mayhem doing Deep Mysterious for like four years, you know? Um, milked that one pretty good. Yeah, they did all right. That's true. <laughs> you know, God, how easy that would be just if I could do an album with six notes. just to yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like it's... Um, it's um, it's just the idea that, like you say, is that younger people wouldn't have got to see the band in the late 80s, early 90s. And like, we only get one short spin around the ball of dirt. So, I mean, who, I, I think it's a sort of, um, a sort of, let's say, can be a mean hearted, sort of capricious idea that bands should not reform at some stage and play their old songs one last time. Because you never know if it's the last time you're going to get to have a go at doing it, you know. As long as they do it convincingly and it's not just some cash in or, I mean, I know how it is when you see bands where it's like one or two original dudes. And yes, that's it with Nuclear Assault. There's me and John. But also, we kind of get away with that because even back in the day, you know, me and John did most of the interviews and we were kind of like the front men because mm -hmm. I was a guy from Anthrax and SOD and I was very tall. And, you know, uh, and John, of course, was. You keep mentioning the tall thing. It's like, you, were you in Turban having like some sort of height off or something? Is that what it was? You, you should have worn heels maybe like Motley Crue or something. That would have made it even better. Like big Gene Simmons fucking boots, right? Yeah, um, yeah. No, Neil wanted me to stand. Okay, remember, this is Priest and Maiden back in the day. Yeah. And if you ever look at the cover of Unleashed in the East. Yeah. Front door back. Ian Hill's in the back behind Glenn Tipton. True enough. Yeah. All the yeah. You know? Steve Harris is up in the front with his fucking foot on the ledge. And Neil was like, and he had a nasal voice, which I will imitate for you. Um, Danny, I want you to stand in the back like Ian Hill. I was like, fuck off, I'm standing in the front like Steve Harris. <laughs> if I stood in the back, then he would have looked taller, you know? And uh. Yeah, so I didn't know. He was the one who was uh, more concerned about it because I, I was, you know, 6'4", and he was like 6'1". I mean, uh, do you guys do that? Or the meters? I forgot. <laughs> no, I, well, I'm, I grew up in Ireland in the 70s and 80s. I get the metric system. Um, we just, I think we just didn't adopt it just to spite the English, you know, any little, any little thing we could do, you know? Right. So yeah, it was a height off. I, I just, I was curious to uh, rediscover that, that reason why. But then the, um, but then the sort of, you continue on into the 2000s with most of the things kind of going simultaneously then. Um, well, not at the same speed and not at the same amount of touring and stuff, but you know, it's still existing. When Brutal Truth came back, we actually went ahead and recorded a couple of more records. We took a, you know, a more industrious approach. For Nuclear Assault, we just kind of rested on our laurels. We did do that Third World Genocide record in 2005, but that record was a pile of shit. <laughs> yeah, I'm not very proud of that record. And 
it was the guy from the label, this little, I, I'm not going to make excuses, mind you. I played yeah. on it, yeah. but um, I would not call that a record I was you know, proud of, or even out of order. I was just not even into it by then. Angela Carroll's last nuclear assault record. But with Brutal Truth, it was more like recording and touring. And we came out with Evolution to Revolution in 2008, I think it was, or 2000, whatever. Yeah. We purposely made a record that was like a fucking grind hammer. We wanted people to go, oh, these guys are middle-aged now. They're not going to be able to play grinds like they did. We said, oh, yeah, watch this. And we made sure every fucking song on that record was just, you know, like 99% blast beats, you know, yeah. almost call fucking war metal now or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh just to show we're not fucking around and you know we're not going to come out here and half-ass it we're not a bunch of old dudes who are just going to come out there and limp through our old stuff yeah, yeah. we're going to be fucking fresh and relevant and fucking you know hit you right between the fucking eyes the nuclear assault was more just a different lazier approach but it was a different thing with the thrash dudes they were like as long as you play the shit from the old days we're happy to hear that. It was a whole yeah. different concept. And you, right? ended, and you ended up with Barker playing the drums for a while as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Barker, you know, um, <laughs> ended up with an injury. He couldn't do stuff anymore. And he was just doing his own thing. So uh, Barker, obviously, just old friends with the dude. Did a bunch of shows with him. And I was filling in with lockup. You know, we were mates. And he was just the perfect dude to uh, jump in. And uh, just nail all that shit. <clears throat> Make it look easy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And for him, it was just dream come true. I, I, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> we talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. But but uh, but something strikes me about, and maybe this is a bit existential or something. But this weird punctuation mark that we're having now in the world in the last eighteen months, it sort of feels like it's punctuated a sort of strange decade of making music. I mean, have you how have your feelings towards making music change now come as well? And theoretically, we're coming partially out of this. Do you feel it's like some sort of punctuating mark, end of a chapter, end of the last 10 years? You know, because it's it's hard to sum up some of the last 10 years because really it was just, you know, festivals flying around, traveling, touring, doing this thing and that thing and the other. But it does feel like somehow um, the days of those old shows seem to me somehow, maybe as a pessimist, a little bit numbered that people are going to be allowed to have the same freedom as maybe they were. Maybe we're renting a period where this is not. So um, it's not going to happen as freely as it used to. Well, I might be wrong, but you know. I would hope not. But uh, well, I kind of put a period on the end of my sentence around 2014 when I said, I'm going to retire. That didn't yeah, work yeah. <laughs> Retiring was really, it was a kind of nice way to stop playing Brutal Truth. I didn't want to play Brutal Truth anymore. Yeah. yeah. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to consult the other guys. It's stuff I'm not really going to get into because it's sure, really yeah. business. But let's just say that it was a diplomatic way for me to just go, I'm fucking done doing stuff. Also, by that point, I was getting sick of being fucked around in airports. I was, I was hitting 50 then. And you know, dude, you travel. Yeah, yeah. Aircraft maintenance, fucking weather. I mean, getting to where you were going by that time, on time with all your shit, awake playing a festival was becoming the exception, not the rule. So that was really fucking frustrating me. Sure. So my lack of enthusiasm with doing brutal truth for, like I said, those reasons and just traveling, getting really frustrated. I'm like, fuck this. I'm just really going to back off. I'm going to back down a little bit. So as you know, having been to Rochester, I was playing in the local pop <laughs> band and yeah. no longer together because our singer moved to Texas. But um, I still have the spirit. Um, also, I play in a grindcore band called Blurring here, where Eric Burke, the guy who played guitar for Nuclear Soul, and Brutal Truth is the drummer. Okay. And crazy chaotic grind. We are still around. But as far as all the stuff with the pandemic, it didn't affect me as such because I wasn't going out and touring as much. I felt bad for my friends and bands like Immolation and Mayhem, who were like, dude, we just, Mayhem got fucking eight thousand dollars us on merch for a tour that didn't happen yeah shit like that i felt bad for those people and coming out of this i think people are going to have a thirst to do stuff anymore but now you got this in america now we have a big fucking problem 
started with our fucking former asshole presidents who started the whole mentality that getting vaccinated, wearing a mask isn't cool. Now you got this whole Delta variant. And by the way, don't you think the Delta variant sounds like the name of a shitty power metal album? Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it's a, it's definitely should have unicorn Delta variant before it or something, you know. I could, I could see the artwork already. Yeah, you but, can, of course. Yeah. But, um, so, you know, that's going to have effect on us. So I'll tell you, dude, if I got to wear a mask because some dumb cunt down the road didn't get a fucking vaccine, I'm going to be fucking pissed about that. Well, so, it all remains to be seen. I mean, it's um, it's certain. I certainly think to me that um, the sort of um, freedom of spontaneously choosing whether you're going to go and say, hey, you want to go and see a festival in Belgium this weekend? All right, let's fly from Ireland. It's going to be cheap and we're going to go, go over and blah, blah. I, I just have this feeling that we're maybe entering um, a period whereby we're not going to have the same, some of the same freedoms to do some of the same things. I'm hope to be wrong, but I'm not sure about it. But hey, like, I mean, I'm living on a fucking rock in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, so we have to sort of um, toe the line with some of these rules if we want to get off the fucking rock. That's a shitty thing. If you're living in Germany, you can drive to Austria or drive to Switzerland or drive to whatever. But um, it's certainly shown me, I think, that what live music, art, entertainment, well, art, culture even, um, really how little it seems to matter um, in that it takes completely a backseat like literally in Ireland no one has even stood on a stage for 19 months like we have we're still squabbling over whether people can have a drink indoors that's what we're still squabbling over and we will be squabbling over that for another six months so yeah it's I'm just uh it's just weird like as it feels like a bit of a sort of punctuation mark on um some of the some of the some of the stuff for the last few decades well sure there is that whole forced punctuation mark because all of a sudden punctuation, that's true Everybody making fucking quarantine videos, but I mean, um, well, here we are. <laughs> no, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but you're down in the Republic, correct? I am in the Republic, yes. I'm so, in, the, in the South, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're trapped, you are in the EU. It should be easier for you to go to the continent. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, theoretically, but actually, at the moment, um, England is the country that's opened up more than almost anywhere else. In, Europe, except for Eastern Europe and some other places. But yeah, Ireland is more where months and months behind. But I'm, I'm not going to get into it because people who listen to this podcast are bored with me talking about um, my ranting about geopolitics and ranting about this, the state of Ireland kind of, you know, address kind of thing. But what are you going to do, like, say, next year? Have you got plans musically or what are you going to do? Uh, well, the UK Death Fest that was postponed this year. Oh, yeah. I know so that guy. Yeah. Maryland Death Fest people. We were supposed to play London next month. And uh, that is getting postponed a year. Um, there's a, a dude I know in Tampere, Finland, who has been trying desperately to get nuclear assaults to play his speed metal party. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this thing, I think, yeah. Jan, the dude Jan. Mm. Um, he was in Prestige, the old school. Film. Sure, of course. Yeah. Was trying to get us over. I was going to do him a favor and do a pretty low guarantee for nuclear assault to play his speed metal party, just to have fun. And then the Finnish government said we're not going to be taking people from the EU until late summer, which is very fucking vague. Sure. Well, we were going to use Barker, um, so that didn't happen. Uh, that might happen next year. So, oh yeah. That's this year. Um, I will be playing a festival in November in Atlanta called the Mass Destruction Festival. Right. That was also postponed. That is going to be a lot of fun with nuclear assault. Okay. And Stormtroopers of Beer, I just found out a couple of days ago, are going to be playing some dude's birthday party in Gothenburg next September. <laughs> I'm just going to fly my ass out. And we're going to, uh, I don't know, maybe play Truck Stop Alaska or something over there in Gothenburg. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, Truck Stop Alaska is cool, yeah. Yeah, just have a, a party. So do you? So you're gonna miss? Um, you're gonna be miss being in the back of a smelly van for nine weeks with Lee Dorian's feet? No, next year. Oh, not at all, dude. I'm gonna be uh, 57 in a few months. You know, I'm just gonna uh, take it easy and just just pick something here and there that sounds cool and maybe. Uh, you, but you know, by having proclaimed that you're going to retire when you're 50, I mean, you you have to push it past 60 at this stage now. I mean, what do you, you know? You have well, to. 
just depends on the definition of retiring. You know, if I do two gigs a year and that's okay, then I'm still at it. You know, and uh, otherwise, you know, um, whatever, just we'll see what comes across, what happens. So I get fast fixes, all these butterflies or something outside. It's kind of hypnotizing. <laughs> that sounds like a good moment to uh, press pause on the butterflies outside the window. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. 